We're continuing with um, our series, Caution, Danger Ahead. Uh, the reason we titled it this, again, is because we're in the last, chronologically speaking, the last two months of Jesus' time uh, line, ministry timeline, before he goes to the cross. And so as time comes, becomes short for him, uh, everything that he does, everything that he says is much more critical. It's dangerous living and following Jesus during these last two months. So we titled it Caution, Danger Ahead. And this particular week's uh, message is titled The Eighth Parable. That's what we're going to read now for Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. As we work our way through the book of Matthew, uh, verse by verse. Matthew 18, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's Bibles on either side here. You're welcome to, to use one. If you, if you don't have one that's easy for you to read, then take one of those with you. It can, be, it can be yours. We will have most of the scriptures on the screen for you. And, of course, I'd love for you to be following along in your own Bible. In this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only standard we have for faith and life. So listen to God's Word. Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Let's go before him in prayer. God, I just thank you. I thank you for this day when we can come together and worship corporately. I thank you for your word. It's never changing and ever true. I thank you that it's a place where we can go and be in your presence at any time. Where we can gain all the wisdom that we need to have to operate in this world you've placed us in. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My rock and my redeemer. Amen. I think one of the metaphors, similes, analogies that's used all the way through the Bible to uh, help us to understand who Jesus is, what he's like, to understand what God the Father is like, is that of the shepherd. Several years ago when I was uh, preparing to plant this church, uh, I... And one of my seminary professors um, said, George, uh, you're getting ready to take on a new role. And I want you to have this. It's a staff that came from the Holy Land. It's, uh, it's a staff that's used by shepherds or like those used by shepherds. Uh, it's long. It gives support if they're walking along trails that are uneven. It has a crook on the end here to uh, knock them over the head if they misbehave 
or to grab them by the neck and pull them back if they stray away. I think it was then that I realized that what I was being called to do was far more important than standing up here on Sunday mornings or Monday nights and just talking. I mean, anybody can do that, can't they? We could get a politician to come here and do that. Much better than me, than I. I've been in South Carolina too long. Much better than I. Uh, But shepherding a flock of people, that's quite a responsibility. And it's not one that I take lightly. And and this staff is always in my living room. Well, it's not right now because it's over here. But it's usually in my living room and it's usually hanging on the mantle in a place that you probably wouldn't notice it if you came. It's kind of obscure there, but I see it every time I walk through the room number of times every day and I'm always uh, cognizant of the fact that I've been called to do much more than blabber here on, on Sunday mornings awesome responsibility one that I don't take lightly how can we consider God as, as a shepherd without thinking of some scriptures? The first one, of course, that comes to our minds, I bet, if we were to, to raise hands, would be Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. John chapter 10 is a whole, whole uh, chapter that's devoted to Jesus as the good shepherd. Uh, Verse 11 from that chapter where he uses the imagery himself as, as Jesus as shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There's any number of Psalms that speak to shepherding. Uh, the one that came to my mind when I was writing this was Psalm 100 verse 3. We are his people the sheep of his pasture. The prophet Isaiah uses the same imagery. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Several months ago when we looked at um, some of Jesus' ministry taking taking place in Capernaum on the north uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, We read in in Matthew that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He knew they didn't stand a chance without a shepherd. Hebrews 13.20 describes Jesus as that great shepherd. And 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 verse 4, Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd, the one to whom the under-shepherds, all the under-shepherds are accountable. But here in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus' use of the shepherd imagery is in the form of a parable. Now, parables were devices that were used by Jesus frequently to teach, to teach the people. It's kind of an object lesson, if you will. Something that draws on their everyday life to be able to teach them more about spiritual things. 
In Matthew chapter 13, we looked at seven parables, beginning with the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's this one at the beginning of, or halfway through, I guess, through chapter 18. And there's eight more parables in the book of Matthew. There's another in chapter 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Chapter 20 has the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Chapter 21 has two parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. Chapter 22 is the parable of the wedding banquet. Chapter 25 ends up with three parables, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Sixteen parables in all in the book of Matthew. So Matthew must have considered this teaching device that we call parable today to be a very important part of Jesus' ministry. A parable is a story that draws from real-life circumstances, and, and a parable has one point or maybe a, a couple at most, a couple spiritual points that it's trying to make. Now, it's, it differs from a fable in that a fable doesn't draw on real life. Think about Aesop's fables, and it's generally animals that are talking and acting out, and they're kind of standing for people, and at the end there's some sort of moral Not a spiritual truth, but a moral truth. This particular parable, the parable of the lost sheep, fits into this context of Matthew that we're looking at. If you remember, I told you that Matthew is talking to us about what citizens of the kingdom of God would would be like, what they would look like, how they would act. And this fits right in among the other teachings that he has in Matthew 18. The disciples have asked Jesus... This question that they just can't quite forget. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know. They're saying, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But the real question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In that first week, in that first uh, week of this series, we said those that are humble, those who are like children are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Um, We also look at the one who cares for weak and lost believers. They are like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And, And finally, the one who forgives other people. That's what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven will be like. All those things rolled in together. Now, this parable conveys for us five important characteristics about God. And I want us to spend our time looking at those today. Not a lot on any one, but uh, five that I feel like... Uh, we could probably get more from this, but the, these, are the, <clears throat> these are the ones that I chose. First characteristic is this. God cares for us individually. God cares for us individually. Now, I'm told the same professor that gave me this uh, staff spent a year, took a year off from work and spent a year with the Bedouin shepherds in the Middle East, mostly in Israel, but in Jordan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and some of the other countries as well, to find out what a shepherd really was like. And he told me that um, 
Shepherds know their sheep. They know their sheep. If there's a thousand sheep in your flock, you'll know each one of them. There's a different characteristic about the way they walk or the way they bleat or uh, different colorings or, um, I don't know, different ways. But they know each and every one of those sheep. They know them individually. And what's more, their sheep know them. Their sheep recognize their voices and respond to their voices. If you or I were to go into a pasture in the Middle East that has a, a shepherd, and we were trying to, to get sheep to go back to wherever to eat their dinner, they wouldn't listen to us. they just go right on with whatever they're doing. But let their shepherd say one word to them, and they will go. They know his voice, and they will respond to his voice. And Jesus was building on this fact. He knew this. I mean, everybody in the Middle East knew this. He was building on this fact when he told the people this parable. Um, John chapter 10 verse 14 again Jesus said I am the good shepherd I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for my sheep God knows his people individually God cares for his people individually and when he calls them to faith he calls them by name individually that's one of the reasons I chose for us to celebrate communion as we do here with uh, when you come up for communion you'll notice that the communion server always calls you by name, or if they don't know you, they will ask what your name is. So we can serve you communion individually, just as I believe Christ would. We clearly see this in Jesus' ministry. But think of, think of several examples. Matthew, the guy that wrote this gospel, for example. <clears throat> Matthew... Uh, Uh, records his own uh, conversion, if you will, in Matthew 9.9. It says, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew was a lost sheep. He had been given to Jesus by his father. Jesus knew him Individually. Jesus called Matthew individually. And when he did, Matthew recognized his voice and he responded to the call. He followed his master. Zacchaeus was a lost sheep. Zacchaeus was a little short guy, we're told. He, he, went, he wanted to see Jesus when Jesus came to Jericho and was, was walking through town, kind of like a parade, if you will. And Zacchaeus couldn't see him because he was so short and there were so many people in front of him that he couldn't even get a glimpse of Jesus. But Zacchaeus was a pretty resourceful guy, so he decided he would climb a tree. By the way, I've been to Jericho many times. I've never seen a sycamore tree, so I don't know where they got... Where they got. I've never seen a sycamore tree in the Middle East. 
Uh, I, I don't know where they came up with that. But he climbed this tree so he could get a better view of Jesus as he came by. And Luke 19 verse 5 records it this way. He says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Called him by name, individually. Another more powerful event happened in the little town called Bethany, which is on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a, is a small little mountain range that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. From the top of the Mount of Olives, uh, you can see the entire lay of the land there. And this is on the eastern side, Bethany. Happened to be a place that Jesus stayed, I think, every time he went to Jerusalem. The house of Mary and Martha. Seems that their brother, named Lazarus, was sick and, and about to die. And word was sent to Jesus that this was the case. But Jesus arrived at Bethany after Lazarus had already died. And in John chapter 11, verse 43, we see Jesus stood before the tomb and cried out loudly, Lazarus, come out! And he came out of the tomb. Do you know why Jesus said Lazarus, by the way? If he'd have just said, come out! Every tomb in Egypt, I mean, Israel would have opened up. All the people would have been released. He said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was another one of those lost sheep. He responded, and when he heard Jesus' voice, he returned from the dead. That's a pretty powerful voice, wouldn't you say? What about Mary? There's Mary. Mary was weeping in the garden the garden where Jesus had been placed, buried after the crucifixion. And Jesus spoke to her and she thought it was the gardener. She assumed that's who was talking to her. And then Jesus spoke her name. He said, Mary? Immediately she knew it was him. She recognized his voice. And it's always that way. It's always been that way and will be that way. If you are here today and you're a Christ follower, it's because God has called you individually. And when you heard him call you by your name, you turned away from trusting in yourself and began to trust instead in him alone for your salvation. That's the kind of relationship God has with his people. It's an individual relationship. He wants to know us intimately, individually, on a one-to-one -one basis. He knows you. Even you. He knows you. And, and just think about this. If he, if he called you by name, that's what he did, and we believe that he did, then you can be sure that he's going to use the same kind of individual care 
in keeping you safe and in seeking after you if you happen to stray away from him. Individually. Now, you may be one in a hundred, just like the sheep. You may be one in a hundred, but you are the one that matters the most to him. He loves you individually. The second characteristic is this. God understands our weaknesses. I've, I've never taken care of sheep. I, I, was, I was raised in a rural part of the town that I lived in, outside the city limits. Uh, we had animals. We had uh, farm animals, but we didn't have any sheep. I can't think of anybody in our whole county that had sheep. I'd never really seen a sheep till I was an adult. Not a real live one. I never cared for them. I don't know anything about them other than I've seen tons of them now in the Middle East and in uh, herds. But I'm told that sheep are the stupidest creatures on the face of the earth. The stupidest creatures. And you hear that and you think, well, it's no wonder they're comparing us to sheep. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, for example, a sheep's wool is so heavy that the sheep not, not squats down like uh, to rest, but if a sheep falls over, it can't get up. It can't right itself. It has to have a shepherd with a crook to help it right itself, even to get up. Sheep will eat anything. If you turn them loose in a pasture, they'll eat all the grass in the pasture. Mow it down, you know, mow it. But then they don't stop. They eat the roots. So there's nothing left. It's barren after that. And there were many... uh, gunfights out in in our western uh, United States back in the 1800s over sheep rangers that would come in and completely destroy the, the fields that the cattle would want to graze in. Sheep wander off. That's just one of the things they do. They can have the best shepherd in the world. And that shepherd can take them to the best grazing lands around and, and have them near an abundant supply of fresh running water, clear, good water. But the sheep will still wander off and find a place that's barren with no grass at all and with water that is totally undrinkable. That's just the way sheep are. They're stupid animals. I think one of the wonderful things about God is that he doesn't berate us for being so stupid. He loves us. He loves you. He loves us in spite of our stupidity. The third characteristic is this. God seeks us when we stray. I mean, I'm thinking, God, don't you have anything better to do than go after lost sheep? I mean, for heaven's sakes. I can think of some things that you ought to be doing, like running the universe. You know? Like deciding the flow of history. Like putting kings in place and removing kings from power at the appropriate time. But all those things and everything else we can think of are are actions that are only a backdrop 
to the real drama of salvation, which is seeking and saving lost sheep. And that's the most important thing that God does. God created this world as a stage for the drama of salvation to be acted out upon. And when Jesus came, he described his mission by saying this, Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, he had a lot of important things to do. But in a nutshell, he said, this is my most important thing, to seek and to save what is lost. And you and I, we're so stupid, we don't even know we're lost sometimes. We think everybody else is lost. We're not lost. But we don't know the whole story. Only God knows the whole story. So we can't see how we actually fit into this history of his. Besides, we want to do what we want to do. I want to do what I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. I want to have fun. I don't want to do that. This Jesus stuff, I don't have time for that. God doesn't wait for us to come back to him. You know why? Because we wouldn't. We would never come back to him. Romans 3.11 says there's no one who seeks God. No one. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... He sent Christ to die for us. Did we have to get cleaned up first? No, thank God we didn't have to get cleaned up first. Could we come as we are? Absolutely. Absolutely, just as you are. Whatever mess you're in, come. That's why our motto here is belonging before believing. Come, be a part. Come be a part. Perhaps somewhere, once you're loved and once you feel a part, you'll begin to believe as well. If we only let people walk in the door that believed, we wouldn't have many people here. We certainly wouldn't be looking for new quarters. But once again, there's that 78% of our area that don't attend church are we just going to let them stay out there are we going to try to do something that might reach them the fourth characteristic God rejoices when we repent and return to him now there's some I hated philosophy class there's some philosophers that say that God, if there is a God, God doesn't have any emotions. Because if he had emotions, then he would respond to what we do and how we act. And in our uh, actions, we would be able to actually control God because we would control his emotions. That's crazy stuff. 
That's, that's why I didn't like philosophy. It made no sense. Why would they even think that? The Bible says that God grieves over sin. Now, there's an emotion. And it says that he rejoices when a sinner is reclaimed. There's another emotion. I think God's an emotional God. And Jesus makes that perfectly clear in, in this parable and other places. And that's why I chose the big idea for today is as this. God loves you. You. And he wants to bring you home. He wants to bring you back home. God loves you and wants to bring you home. He says of the great shepherd, this is Matthew 18, 13, he is happier about that one sheep, that one sheep that was found, than about the 99 that didn't wander off. He's happier about that one. Isn't that great? In, in, in Luke uh, chapter 15, it's, it's called the uh, chapter of the lost because there's three different stories in there. The first about the lost sheep, which is kind of a parallel for this that we're looking at in Matthew. The second is about the lost coin. And the third is about a lost son that we come to know as the prodigal son. The prodigal son was lost. He had squandered his inheritance on wild and, we could probably say, loose living. But the Bible says at last he came to his senses. He came to his senses and went back to his father to confess his sin and to seek a place of work as a servant in his father's house. Now we think of this story primarily about, as being about the son, but it's a story about the father who represents God himself. The father. I get a picture. We, we, we preached through this a year or two years ago or something. Get a picture of a father standing there looking in his living room, looking out through the picture window, just hoping to see a glimpse of his son come over the little hill on the horizon. Longing for his son. Waiting for his son's return. And when he saw his son finally coming, do you know what he did? He ran out to him. He threw his arms open wide, hugged him, and kissed him. This son, who had squandered his inheritance on wild and loose living. And then the father said to his servants in Luke 15, 22, Quick, bring the best robe and put, it, put on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I don't want you ever to think that if you find yourself lost, you find yourself having strayed, and you decide to go back, that you would think that your father would be angry or vindictive or distant. No. 
He's going to be there with his arms open wide to receive you. A hug ready for you. Put you in the midst of his presence and his love. And a kiss. And then give you everything that he has. Everything God has done up to this point in history... I mean, think about it. Everything that he has done has been for your salvation. He loves you individually. It's been for you. And no one in the universe will be happier at at your true repentance than God the Father himself. He's going to be overjoyed. The fifth characteristic is this. God's pursuit of the lost is effective. Effective. Matthew 18, 14. Your Father in heaven is not willing that any, how many? Any of these little ones should be lost. The Father seeks them until he finds them and then he brings them home. Jesus was teaching earlier in this chapter about how, how to care for weak, weak believers. The little ones, he calls them. And, and Walt last week did a great job of defining those little ones for us. Now, Jesus isn't teaching here that there's universalism in salvation. Everybody is not going to be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. Rather, Jesus is talking about the perseverance of the saints and the belief that not even one of those that God the Father has given to Jesus the Son, not even one of them will perish. If we go back to John chapter 10, after the imagery about the the good shepherd, we look at verse 28, it says this. This is Jesus talking. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's as if I take a coin and I place it in Jesus' hand and he secures it with a grip. Well now, if, if enough of us got together, it may be possible to eventually pry that hand open and get that coin out. But look what he says. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So not only is his hand holding on to you, the Father's hand's on top of that. And there ain't no way that they're letting go of this so that anyone could get at you. It's secure. No one's strong enough 
My father is greater than all. No one's strong enough to break that grip. And what I was thinking as I, as I wrote this down this week is that, yeah, here you got the hand of Jesus secured by the hand of God the Father. And each one of them has a hand free. A hand free to protect you, defend you from whatever else might come your way. It's not over right here. There's still freedom out there that they'll take care of. Little ones. They include weak and vulnerable children. We've talked about that. They include those who are weak and vulnerable in other ways. Those who are weak and vulnerable at other times. They include the cripple, the chronically ill, the elderly and the infirmed, refugees. In some countries, as we spoke of earlier, even, even women would be the weak and vulnerable, the little ones. Any who find themselves on this human scrap heap where our world throws people who they don't know what else to do with. They just end up there. The little ones, they include the, the dirty beggar that you avoided at the gas pump yesterday. They include the waitress who you made fun of behind her back. They include the little old lady walking down the street, plastic bags in tow, full of all the possessions she has on earth. They include the teenage boy. The teenage boy who didn't see anything particularly wrong and wanted to impress his friends, wanted to be accepted by them, so he drifted into drugs. Now he's dying from heroin addiction. We are ashamed of them. God isn't. We don't want to know about them. We want them out of sight. God wants to let them into his closest, most intimate presence. We regard them as undesirables. God desires not only their well-being, but he also desires their company. He wants them right there with him. They are the poster children of the kingdom of God. We turn them away as a society. Why? Because we've turned away from God. We've forgotten what is most important. And the sovereign God isn't satisfied to say, well, we've still got 99. Let's not worry about that one silly one that kind of strayed off. Does it all the time. Not worth much anyway. No. To God, that's the very one that does matter. The one that has strayed away. You matter to him. If you, if you find yourself here today and you have strayed, 
You matter to him. He loves you. He's seeking after you. Right this very minute, he's seeking you. Let him bring you home. That's all he wants. is to bring you back home in his care and love. In the book of Revelation, the first part of the of the book has, uh, first three chapters, as a matter of fact, has, has letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. Now, my wife and I have this ongoing spat about those letters. She says they're written to the churches and not applicable to us. I say, we are the churches, so they are applicable to us. Whatever. <laughs> She's not here, so I can say whatever I want to. Uh, In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's the good shepherd talking. That's your Savior talking. And there was this pre-Raphaelite artist named Holman Hunt that after reading this account, this very account in Revelation 3.20, put oil to canvas in a painting that he titled The Light of the World. The Light of the World a picture of the Good Shepherd, a picture of the Savior standing at the door, knocking. How long has he been knocking? He's been knocking a long time. Because you notice there's brambles and briars that have grown up in front of the door. He's been knocking, and that door hasn't been opened for quite some time. He's been knocking and there's no response. And it says, if anyone, and anyone would be you. If anyone hears my voice, the shepherd's voice, if the sheep Hear his voice. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, his promise is, I will come in. I will come in. One of Holman's, Holman Hunt's uh, friends said, I, I think you've made a mistake. If you look closely at that door uh, there, It doesn't have a handle on it. And Holman Hunt said, there's no mistake. 
the door opens from the inside. You see, Jesus is a gentleman. He won't force his way into your life. It's just not the way he does it. He knocks and knocks again and knocks again and knocks again. And you hear it. But maybe like me, come hell or high water, you are not going to open that door. I mean, I've got a life to live. I'm having fun. I don't, don't want to get into this Jesus stuff. I've got to give up too much if I get into that Jesus stuff. So I'm not going to open the door. Maybe he'll go away. And he knocks again. And he knocks again. And then eventually, you open your heart. And you allow him to come in. And when he comes in, he comes in by his spirit. The same Holy Spirit that's been tugging at your heart all that time. You felt it. You knew that it wasn't quite right the way you were living. The people you were hanging around with. The parties you were attending the way you were treating others. But you weren't ready to uh, open that door and let him in. For me, uh, there was a time back in the 80s. You're going to hear more about this in a couple of weeks. But for me, back in the 80s, there was a time that I found myself on a Wednesday night at a large church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that knocking at the door had become pounding at the door by that point. Still was not going to open the door. I mean, I knew, I knew who God was. I knew who Jesus was. I grew up in a Christian family. I, I uh, knew that he was my Lord and Savior. I wasn't going to let him into my life, for heaven's sakes. Because then you get serious and you've got to change things. I didn't want that to happen. But that Wednesday evening, a song started playing. And it was a hymn. You know, I thought hymns were old, but this hymn was written in 1958. For some of you, that's ancient, isn't it? Uh, uh, written in 1958. 
And I think when the first chord of that hymn started, I was out of my seat and down front. I don't remember the walk down front. I remember it was a, a mile-long aisle because it was in a huge church. I don't remember ever touching the ground as I went down front. I just remember being there and somebody praying with me when I was willing to open my heart. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to him? If you'll take one step toward the Savior, my friend, you'll find his arms open wide, just like the father with the prodigal son. He's waiting for you. Receive him, and all of your darkness will end. Within your heart, he'll reside. He will come and reside in you by his Holy Spirit. How wonderful is that? Time after time after time, he's waited before. And now he's waiting again to see if you're willing to open that door. Won't you let him come in? He wants to come in today. I know this is not something that we're accustomed to doing here at Renovation Church for any number of reasons. We're, we're not uh, uh, averse to it. It's just not one of our normal practices. But he's knocking today on somebody's heart here. I've known this all week. I think there's more than one person because I was instructed to clear out some space up here at the front. And I don't think it takes that much room for me. I want to ask you to consider opening that door this morning. I want you to consider how hard is that walking to the front? And letting someone pray with you. I don't know. Are you a communion person or would you mind?
Who else do we have here from the ministry team? Karen, would you mind? That's one guy and one gal. If we need more, we'll find them. We've got them around here. Won't you consider coming and praying with these two people, Karen and Jay? If he's tugging at your heart, maybe you don't even know what that feels like, but you know that that you're about to explode. That's the way it felt for me. I just sensed that I was going to explode if I didn't do something. And that the response that he wanted me to make was to go forward and let somebody pray with me. How wonderful it was. How wonderful. What a release. Just open your heart. Open the door. Let him in. If you strayed in whatever way, I don't, I don't know what you've done. I, it doesn't matter what you've done. He wants you to come home. He's waiting. Arms open wide. Come. Come today. So take a moment. Take a moment. And then Come. Let one of us pray with you. If you're here today and you find yourself in an excellent relationship with with God through his son, Jesus Christ, first of all, thank him. Say, thank you, God, for letting that be me. But I'd love for you to join me in prayer for those who are here that really need to come and be prayed with today, to turn their lives over today. Pray for them. Let's take just a moment and allow the Spirit to move. Come, Holy Spirit, come and invade this place. Come and invade each heart here. Open us up to be receptive to the working of your Spirit power within us. Savior's calling. Answer him now.